All right, good morning. Hey, it's really good to see you guys today. Uh, I was out last week, and it's good to be back. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we jump into today's, to today's message, I got just a, a few quick announcements for you. First of all uh, is today at 4.30 p.m. we are having starting point. So if you are new here to Grace Point Church and you're wondering where do I start, you start here uh, at starting point. So uh, it starts at 4.30 right out here in the uh, lobby gathering center area that, out there. Uh, there's no need to sign up. All you got to do is just show up. And so it'd be a great opportunity to meet some of the pastors, some of the staff, uh, but also be a great opportunity for us to get to meet and know you as well. So come, please join us for that. Also, uh, this might not apply to you since you are at the 9 a.m., uh, but on Father's Day, we are no, uh, we're not going to be having a 6 p.m. gathering. So uh, come to the 9 or the 11 a.m. and then spend the rest of the day celebrating uh, the fathers in your life. Got it? Good. Uh, by a show of hands, who in here has ever had an imaginary argument with someone in their head? <clears throat> All right, we all have done that. So we, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so I am notorious for this, and I typically do this while I'm driving, which might mean I'm a bad driver. Um, but uh, I do this in the car, and I don't know I'm doing it until Kate uh, taps me on the shoulder, and she goes, who are you talking to? Um, and then I come to reality, and I'm like, oh, okay, I, I'm doing it again, aren't I? She's like, yeah. She's like, give him a piece of your mind, just not too much, okay? Um, and so uh, I'm having this hypothetical argument in my head. And now here's the thing. I've won every single one of those arguments. <clears throat> I always know the right thing to say. I always like make good points and good argument. And the person I'm arguing with are like, you're so right. I'm so wrong. Like, how could I? Uh, and, and so uh, like, we always win these hypothetical arguments. Well, there's an actual term for this. Uh, when we have hypothetical arguments, especially in, in writing, and it's called a diatribe. And so a diatribe is just really when we are having an imaginary argument. And this is what Paul is doing in our letter here today in chapter 3. He is having an imaginary or hypothetical argument with the readers of this letter. So that's where we are going today. Now, if you remember last week, uh, Pastor Ty gave us seven words that Christians use to hide behind and keep us from having true faith and in turn can make us a bunch of religious dum-dums that nobody wants to be around and can be dangerous and deadly to our souls and keep us from having a real relationship with Jesus himself. And the real reason why Ty is not here this week is because the grammar police came and arrested him <clears throat> and he has been sentenced to life. Uh, so no, uh, now I wasn't here last week. I was traveling. Uh, and so if you uh, were out last week like me, I really highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's going to be worth your time. But today we are continuing uh, our, our journey through the book of Romans, and we pick up in chapter 3. <clears throat> now, uh, to understand what we are going to be talking about today in chapter 3, it's really important that you grasp chapter 1 and chapter 2. So I want to do a quick recap because you have to know chapter 1 and 2 in order to understand Paul's arguments in chapter 3. Now in chapter 1, Paul is addressing a pagan society and culture that has completely and outrightly rejected God. And, and then he also talks about how God's wrath on the ungodly and the unrighteous. And so he talks about that. Now, you can imagine that the uh, Jewish readers of this letter, as they were hearing Paul talk about like God's wrath coming down on the ungodly, uh, especially living in Rome, they're like, yeah, go after him, God. You know, like, like rip him a new one, like, like really come down hard on him. Well, then we get to chapter two and Paul says, 
but not so fast. Just because you are Jewish, you're just as bad as these non-religious people over here. And imagine that record scratch. As, as the, the Jewish readers here are like, what? Like, you're telling me that I'm just as bad as those people in chapter one? Like, like, like you're comparing us to them? And Paul's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. And so now we pick up in chapter three, and Paul is expecting uh, these Jewish readers to have some objections to say that these religious people are just as bad as the raunchy people in chapter one, right? And so Paul's expecting these uh, objections, and like a good preacher, he anticipates what these objections might be, and then uh, before they even have a chance to make the objection, he makes it for them, and then he answers these objections. So what we're going to do today in chapter 3 is we're going to look at four objections to Paul saying that religious people are just as bad as the raunchy people. Sound good? Now, you might be tempted to think, Tim... What does this have to do with me? I'm not Jewish. I, I, I'm not Jewish. I'm, I'm a Christian. What does this have to do with me? Well, it might just have everything to do with you. By a quick show of hands, who in here would say that they are a religious person? Okay, there's a few. Okay, well, that's good because um, I hate to say that was a trick question. It really was. Um, because what, what Paul is really saying is like religion what is it good for? Absolutely nothing, right? That's what Paul is saying. Um, and, and Paul knows this because Paul was the most religious person that ever lived. Look what he says about himself in Philippians 3. <clears throat> he, says, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he says, I got the right lineage, I got the right heritage, I got the right passion, I got the right zeal, and I have the right obedience. He's like, no one, all 613 rules, he says, I've obeyed. Like, point to one and tell me I haven't obeyed it. And so Paul says, uh, really, religion, what is it good for? Nothing. And he goes on in verse 7, he says, but whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He's saying, following all the rules, being a Pharisee, having passion and zeal for uh, the law, he says, that, that, that's rubbish. What, what counts most is knowing Christ. And so Paul's whole argument here is that you don't want to be a religious person. It's like, really, what, what makes most sense is that you want to be a redeemed person. So here's what I want you to do. <clears throat> Anytime you see the word Jew in our text today, I want you to interchange that with the term religious person. So grab your Bibles and turn with me over to Romans chapter 3. 
We're going to start off in verse 1. Now, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you're really going to need one because this is a long text today. So uh, we're going to put the verses for you on the screen, help you follow along. Uh, but it'd be really good if you had a Bible in your hand and you were flipping pages and looking at it and reading it from God's Word. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have one. And so there's tables all around the gathering center here. You can just get up right now. No one's going to look at you weird or funny uh, and go grab one of those Bibles. Uh, and you don't have to return it. It's yours to keep. We also have Bibles out there at Center Point as well that you can grab. Now, here is the first objection to Paul saying that religious people are just as lost as non-religious people. <clears throat> Verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And so the argument that, 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 uh, that's being made here is that if being a Jew doesn't get you into heaven, if being a Jew doesn't earn you God's favor, why bother with it? Like, what good does it do? And if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, it's not a very good one. And so it's not really advantageous to be a Jewish person. I mean, the whole nation of Israel, they started out under 400 years of slavery, and then they wandered the desert for 40 years. And then once they got into the promised land, they were attacked continuously by the surrounding nations. There was civil war. They were exiled twice, like were completely removed from their country. And they've been enduring Roman oppression and occupation since then. And so really the only benefit to being a Jew at this time was that you got to be called God's chosen people, that you were God's people. That was the only benefit. And here Paul is, he's saying, you know what, that's really not even a benefit anymore. He's taking the only advantage they had away from them. And so uh, they're, they're saying, like, if that doesn't get me into heaven, why am I obeying all 613 of these rules? Why am I bothering being a moral person? Why am I bother doing all of these things? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, Tim, isn't Christianity a religion too? Are you saying that Christianity is, is, is of no advantage to me? Tim, are you saying that going to church and reading my Bible and tithing 10% and giving up my Sundays to serve and following a bunch of moral rules doesn't earn me favor with God? Well, what I'm saying is that these things don't fix our problem of sin. That these things don't get us into heaven. So the question is, so why do we do them? Well, look at Paul's response. He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says, even though these things don't save us, there's a lot of value to us in doing them. And Paul's saying, like, God spoke to you through the prophets. He spoke to you through the word of God. And so that is of a great advantage to you. Now, who in here would say reading the Bible, good thing or bad thing? Good thing, right? What if you're not a Christ follower? Is reading the Bible a good thing or a bad thing? It's still a good thing, right? Um, does reading the Bible get you into heaven? No. But we would all agree then that even though the Bible does not get you into heaven, whether you are saved or not, it is advantageous for you to read God's word, right? That's what we're all agreeing upon. And really, if you think about this first argument that that's being made here, it's really kind of a flawed argument because there's a lot of things in our lives that we do that don't save us, but are of great value to us just as Christians, but even as human beings. 
Think about living a moral and ethical life. Like, that doesn't save us. We know that. But, but it, it is a value to us to, to live by a, a, a set of morals and ethics. And like, you know, it's, it's good to not lie, steal, cheat, uh, lie, cheat, or steal, or run around, right? Like, because if we do those things, it, it causes problems for us. So it's advantageous to us to tell the truth, to, to not steal, to, to not run around. Like, we, we know being generous, Right? Being generous with our time, with ourselves, with our resources. Uh, being generous, it doesn't save us, but it's advantageous to us. Like people who are generous people typically live very full and well lives. Going to a community group, going to a community group does not save you, uh, but it is highly advantageous to you. Why? Because there's friendships and there's relationships. One of the biggest mental health problems that is plaguing uh, the United States today is a lack of friendships. And, and so it's advantageous, just uh, even though going to a community group isn't going to save us, it's advantageous to just our life, even if we didn't follow Christ, to be able to have a group of friends that we could count on, that we could be around, that we could live uh, in, in friendship and community with. Now, I uh, had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. You know, every time the doors were open, that my family was there at church. My parents worked at the church, and so even when the doors weren't open, we were at the church. And my parents, they, they loved one another. They loved Jesus. They taught me the Bible. Uh, they taught me what it looked like to follow Jesus. And um, that did not save me. I thought it did for 16 years. For 16 years of my life, I thought, like, because I did all of those things, that I was just saved. Until I was 16 years old and I awoken like, to the reality of like, man, I've just been living off my parents' salvation. It never occurred to me that just because I did all of those things that man, I wasn't truly following Jesus myself. I was just kind of going along. I was just kind of going with the flow. Now, to grow up in a family that taught me to love Jesus, that taught me to read the Bible, that taught me Bible stories, that helped me memorize scripture verses, even though that did not save me, that was very advantageous for me throughout my life. And even now I look back on that, and it's a good thing that I grew up in a home where I had mom and dads who loved one another and they loved Jesus. And so just because something does not save us doesn't mean that it's not advantageous to us. So that's Paul's argument here. Look, listen to his second objection. He says, what if some were unfaithful? And the sum here is, what if, uh, what if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And so what he's saying about the Jewish people is like, okay, since these are God's chosen people, and if, since some of them kind of fell off, does that mean that God's not really faithful himself? Look at Paul's response. He goes, verse 4. He says, by no means. And this is his most emphatic way of saying, absolutely not. He says, let God be true, and though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so he says, absolutely not. Of course God is still faithful, even though uh, people are unfaithful. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. He's saying that no matter what people do, who have the advantage of receiving God's word, God is still going to be faithful. Let me illustrate it for you this way. Now, if Pastor Ty was preaching, this is where he would insert a Dallas Cowboys joke. 
because I'm about to give you a sports analogy, but I don't want to see Pastor Terrence crying later, so I'm, I'm going to spare him, uh, and I'm just going to use the Golden Knights, right? Go, go Knights, go. Okay? So let's say next year, after we win the Stanley Cup this year, let's just say next year, for some reason, the Golden Knights don't live up to uh, expectations, uh, they, they end up losing the majority of their games. Uh, they're not doing well. The players just seem kind of out of sorts. Um, and, and they're not really playing well all season. Who gets the blame? The players or the coach? The coach, right? And it makes sense in, in our way of thinking that if, if the team isn't playing well, then the person who picked the team is the one that's to blame. So this kind of, this, this logic here is, since God picked this team, if God chose the nation of Israel to be his people, isn't he the blame for their unfaithfulness? And Paul's saying, absolutely not. And this is how, really, sometimes how, how God gets a bad rap from, from us Christians. Because we can, us Christians, let's just admit it, we can do some pretty awful things sometimes, don't we? And we can, we can say and do and be mean, uh, and we can behave badly. And when that is witnessed by an unbelieving world, they look at us and say, uh, like, okay, they're to blame, but they're following God, so their God must be like that too. And so, the, so God gets the blame in that. But Paul is saying that that's not the case. Look what he says in 2 Timothy 2.13. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. See, being faithful is part of God's character. It's just not something that he does. It is who he is. So he cannot deny himself in being faithful. And so uh, a good way to kind of sum up this argument is that God is good even when no one else is. And that's Paul's response to this objection. Look at this next one. He says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way. And I think this is a very interesting argument here because the argument is that if I'm, is that if I'm sinning, my sinning actually serves to make God look better. Like, it's kind of like, it, it makes the contrast more real. Because God is perfect, he's holy, and he's righteous. And the worse I am, the more perfect and righteous and holy God looks. And so really, uh, in my badness and disobedience, I'm making God look good. And so why would God come down on me if I'm just over here making him look good by my being bad? That's the argument right here. Um, and, and it's really kind of the, oh, the, does the ends justify the means, right? That's the age-old question. Look at Paul's response. Again, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? He's saying if, if, if that is true, then how could God be righteous in his judgment of the world? But here's kind of like the secondary argument to that. He says, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? They're calling God's justness into question now. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously char uh, charge with us saying, he says, their condemnation is just. 
And he's saying, yes, while it is true that the more we sin, the more holy and righteous God looks, but God is holy and righteous. He can't be more holy and righteous because he's, that's, just, that's, that's, that's it. He says, but God is still right and just to condemn them and their sin. Now, here's the important part, because I'm going to give you a big theological word here. And it's, um, you guys are smart, and I know you can handle it. But this word is antinomianism. Everybody just go ahead and say that. It's fun to say. Antinomianism. We're going to put it on the screen for you. You can write it down. Anti means against. Namas uh, means the law. And ism is just an ism, right? And so, uh, so it's against the law. So the position is that uh, of antinomianism is that if I am saved by God's grace, then I can do whatever I want. And then whenever I do my unrighteousness, it's now declared righteous because of I am saved by grace. Now here's the thing. This idea wasn't just a problem in when Paul wrote this letter, this idea of antinomianism is alive and well in the church. Some of us here may be living out their lives in this very way. We would say with our mouth, I believe and trust and follow Jesus, but with our life, you would never be able to tell. And then when we're called out on that, we just say, look, I'm forgiven, I'm saved by grace. And, and, and there's no heart change. There's no transformation. There's no desire to live into what God has called us to. Do you know what this is called? An easier word for this? Cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace that we give to ourselves. It's not from God. Cheap grace is grace without Jesus. And grace without Jesus is really no grace at all. I want to illustrate cheap grace to you this way. Let's just say you own a cat. And you want to repent of owning a cat. Yeah, I know, Lord, that owning a cat is wrong. I shouldn't do it. Uh, but, Lord, I'm saved, and I know you're going to forgive me, so I'm just going to keep on owning this cat. That's cheap grace. Do you know what the opposite of cheap grace is? Costly grace. It's, this is the kind of grace that, that transforms you. That when you see, receive this costly grace, you're like, you know what? I don't want to own this cat anymore. I'm going to give it away. I'm, 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 I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to put it as far away from me as possible. Now, with costly grace, we may still struggle with sin, but it means we don't want to do it, and we keep trying our best through the power of the Holy Spirit to turn and walk away from it. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about costly grace. He was the one that came up with this idea. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. 
It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we may be thinking like, well, Tim, though, like, like grace is a free gift from God. Like how could it be costly? Well, one, it, it begins by being costly because it costs Jesus his life in order for it to be given to you. And yes, God freely gives us his grace, but without grace, uh, but grace without Jesus is cheap grace. Grace uh, with Jesus is costly because Jesus says those who follow me will take up their cross. So I want you to know that in the end, cheap grace is no grace at all. That we just can't go on and profess Christ and live any way that we would like. And here's Paul's final objection. He says, look at verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And essentially the question is, so what you're telling me is that being Jewish or being religious is not, we're not any better than non-religious people. Are you saying, like, I'm a, I'm a church-going person, Tim? Are you, are you saying that I'm not any better than, than the person who doesn't go to church and who doesn't live uh, a, a, a religious life? Look at Paul's response. He says, no, not at all. You're not any better off. He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. He says, as it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. Paul says, we're not any better off. And he's making a case here. He's making a case against the religious, that the religious person is just as uh, lost as the irreligious person. That the moral person is just as lost as the unmoral person. Just because you go to church and you may serve every week and you might do all the religious things, you can still be lost and on your way to hell. It's one of the most scariest verses in all of Scripture is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are lots of church people who are lost people. There may be even some here this morning who would say, you know, I'm a good church person. I, I come to church every week, uh, but, but you are lost. C.S. Lewis says when we get to heaven, there will be three surprises. The first one, surprises, we'll be surprised that we're there. Like we made it. <laughs> the second surprise is who is there? Like, I didn't think they would make it. They did. Awesome. <laughs> but the third surprise who isn't there. There will be people that we'll fully expect to see in heaven that we just may not because they were religious people and not redeemed people. 
And Paul is, is he's, he's writing this because he wants there to be no confusion in what he's trying to say. And he's pleading with his Jewish brothers and sisters, these religious, um, these religious people, just to say, look, just because you are God's chosen people, just because you have the, the word of God, just because you read it and you obey and you're moral, does not mean that you are justified before God. He's saying, religion, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing when it comes to your salvation. And what Paul's done now is that he is done making all these hypothetical arguments. He's um, like laid out his, his kind of his case. And, and, and what he's going to be doing from now through verse 20 is he's going to be a, a, a prosecutor standing in front of a jury using the law to convict these uh, individuals, these religious people who think uh, that they are saved. So he's laying this out like a good attorney. And he says to both Jews and Greeks, in these first three verses, 11, 12, and 13, he lays out, this is what your character is. He describes, this is who we are. Verse, verse 11, he says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. He says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He says, no one, whether you are religious or irreligious. So we know how the irreligious don't seek God. How do the religious not seek God? Because they're, they're doing spiritual, godly, kind of Jesus-y things a little bit, right? But really, the religious person isn't seeking after God. They're seeking after good works. And so he's saying, in that, you're not seeking after God. And, and, and listen, like, look at verses 13 and 14 as well. Because he begins to say, like, because no one seeks God, this is the result of that. So in these next two verses, we see um, people who don't seek after God, things that they say. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Well, doesn't that sound like our culture today? I mean, you, you look at the culture, social media, the news, like no matter where you are at, you see people spewing the most vile, hateful things towards one another. And it's just not those irreligious people that are doing it. I've seen people, I've heard people, I know people who would claim Christ to say the most vile and hateful things to other people. Now, I can just say that's not the way of Christ. And so this is what is coming out of them. Then he goes on and says, okay, this is what you say, but this is also what you do. Look at verse 15. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I want you to remember now, Paul's going after the religious person. And the reason why he's being so harsh here in his indictment is because religious people, we typically don't think we're as bad as we really are. And the reason why we don't think we're as bad as we really are is because religious people, we compare ourselves to others rather than Christ. See, the Bible says that our standard isn't other people, but it's the righteousness of God. 
Who I am morally has nothing to do with how I measure up against you. And we, we get that, right? Like people are not our standard of righteousness. Look, look, look with me in Luke 18, uh, beginning of verse 10. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. See, the Pharisee was, was the religious elite. He was uh, the top of the social ladder. I mean, like when it comes to culture and society, like people looked up to him, people respected him, and then he goes and he's praying next to this tax collector who's at the bottom rung of society. Everyone looked down on him. And the Pharisee, in that moment, he was comparing himself not to the righteousness of God, but like, Lord, just thank God I'm not like them. And so that must make me okay. And like, like, like really, look at this guy. He's way worse than I am. And, and before we're too hard on the Pharisee, that's exactly what we do. See, we live in a culture that is very affluent, and we have a tendency sometimes to confuse the fact that we are better off than most people with being better than people. See, the reality is, is we might be better off, but that doesn't make us better than. Like, I'm better off than a cat owner, but I'm not better than because I own a dog, right? Um, I'm not better off than the guy on the street asking for a couple of bucks. I mean, I mean, I'm mean, better off, but I'm not better than. You know, we're no better off than the drug addict living under the I-15. We might be better off, but we're not better than for sure. You know, I might be better off than the dad who has to steal food to feed his family. I might be better off, but I'm, I'm morally, I'm no better than he is. I might not be better than the person who disagrees with me politically, or I might not uh, be better than the person who disagrees with me theologically. And we typically tend to hold ourselves in higher positions because of our political or theological beliefs, and we hold ourselves up here. But just because I have different theological or political beliefs, is, uh, uh, even from other people, doesn't make me better than them. I don't have to agree with them, but I, it doesn't make me better than them. And now, inevitably, when we make this argument, someone's sitting back with thinking, like, well, Tim, are you saying I'm no better off than anyone else? Like, are, you're saying I'm no better than Hitler? Well, to be sure, Hitler was evil to his core. But remember, God is not judging me against Hitler. He's judging me against Jesus' perfect righteousness. And so, and scripture says we all fall short. And that's what Paul has been saying here in these last verses. He's raising this indictment. He's, he's bringing the case that says we are all guilty. The law has spoken. But how do we know? How do we know that to be the case? Look at verse 19. It says, now we know 
that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, the law is just there to let us know how sinful and awful and rotten we really are. And Paul's laid out his case, and the indictment has come back. The verdict is in. We are guilty. The religious and the irreligious are all deserving of God's wrath. It doesn't matter how many cats you kill or how many dogs you rescue, uh, the law has spoken. There's an old saying that says a person has to be lost before they can be found. And really, so far in the first three chapters, Paul has delivered nothing but bad news. Like there hasn't been any good news in chapters one, two, or so far in the first 20 verses of chapter three. It's all been bad. And so it makes you wonder, why does Paul need so many chapters to try to convince us that we're sinners? It's because it's not normal for us to do that. Typically, we we like to think better of ourselves. We like to say that we're great all the time, or we like, or we're not that bad, or we, we, we compare ourselves to others, or, you know, really a lot of times we can get so caught in our sin that we become blind to it. You know, like those Febreze commercials where you become nose blind? We become sin blind. We just sit in it for so long. It's just like, well, this is just normal. This is just what we do. And we forget our own sinfulness that we're sitting in the middle of that. And Paul, for three chapters, he's trying to just open it up and and make it very clear that we are not. But here is some good news. The law, while it's good and it convicts and it shows us our sinfulness, it does not have to have the final word. It doesn't have the final say. It's like if you stand alone in the the courtroom of, of God's justice and the law is there, it's pointing you at sin. The religious stands there as their own attorney trying to point at their own good works saying, Lord, my good works, they outweigh my bad works. And you know the saying that says, the guy that has himself for an attorney has a fool for a client? That's what we are in that moment. Or we can stand in the courtroom of God's justice and the law has has, has, uh, leveled its verdict against us And all we have to do in that moment is point at Jesus. Look what Paul says later on in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? We let Christ speak for us in that moment rather than our good works. Christ says their debt has been paid. This person is righteous. Why? Because I have paid their debt. Now, I know this morning, it's really easy to hear a message like this 
and to maybe for some of you begin to doubt your salvation. And if you are here and you are a religious person, I hope it does give you pause to think and tremble. And as scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But if you are a redeemed person, I want you to walk out of here thankful. I don't want you to walk out of here doubtful. I want you to walk out of here thankful because I want you to see how bad you were, how great Jesus is, and what he has saved you from. That should make you excited. That should make you grateful. That should fill you with joy as you walk out of here this morning. So let me ask you this morning, are you religious or are you redeemed? Let's pray.